Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and this week, books that are new to us. I'm Sam. I'm Tessa. Joining us today to talk about the Momble 2023 Reading Challenge is our producer, Ryan. Hello. Happy to be back on mic again. Thank you for coming on for our inaugural reading challenge episode. I'm so excited. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy. I When we recorded one of the Star Wars episodes, I said my 2023 Momble goal was to come on and not talk about a movie. Uh, and so I'm I'm happy to cross this goal off my list before the end of the first month of the year. There you go. You always have to, you know, when you make checklists, this is a, a trick I learned pretty early on. You have to put something on the checklist that you can do like immediately, like is very low stakes because that'll give you the motivation to continue on the checklist. I think this was a friend. It was Morgan. You know, Morgan. I do know Morgan. Yeah, She was the one who told me this um, from undergrad and then she was in grad school. But yeah, so she would always put stuff on her checklist, like stand up (laughs) and like she would just like check it (laughs) off and that would give her like the motivation. So good job checking off something off your checklist right at the beginning of the year. And thank you for obliging me. (laughs) So it all it all worked out. Speaking of team list, a book challenge is also a exercise in intentionality saying I want to do this, therefore I will which is part of the reason behind reading challenges in general, but definitely the, the Mambo reading challenge. I think that uh, it's going well. I think, I think folks are having a good time. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. This is actually my first reading challenge. I have never done a reading challenge before, mainly because, as you know from way, way back, I am team chaos when it comes to lists. I don't do well with actual written-down lists, And my reading has been so structured over the last seven years because of grad school that it always felt like doing more structured reading would just be like hell. Um, I wanted to read things that were outside of my reading lists, outside of my dissertation book lists, outside of my class reading lists. And so now that I finished that part of my life last year, it feels really good to bring in an element of structure again, Um, especially structure that I can kind of tweak to my own designs like the reading list gives me sort of a place to go but I'm the one who gets to decide what I want to put in those places I want to just echo some of what uh, Tessa said at least because this is my first time participating in a reading challenge other than the like goodreads how many books do you want to read this year kind of thing but my hesitation previously has always been around the I'm a I need to follow my bliss reading like reader And so my goal is to always read as many books that I have bought, either on a whim or a planned purchase that continue to not be read. But the way, Sam, that you've structured the prompts allows me to still work on that goal while finding specific books to meet the specific criteria within the challenge. Thank you for giving me an entry point into briefly talking about just that. I started doing reading challenges as a way of getting back into reading as, as somebody who should be a big reader, there have definitely been times where, where life has gotten in the way. And I discovered on Goodreads a, a community, like a book club community. And 
As part of that community, somebody had developed a reading challenge, and eventually that reading challenge became its own community on Goodreads. What I liked about the challenge was the challenge, and it got me back into reading a lot. But what I didn't like was some of the specificity of the categories. Like, I am not going to live my life trying to find a book by a Guatemalan author of Irish descent. <laughs> from the year, like from the year I was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I had an idea for a reading challenge and knowing that this person, whose name I can remember but won't say, had drafted off of a book club, I started having conversations with two other people on Goodreads And so I asked the creator of this book club, I'm like, can I do like a variant of the challenge where where points are accumulated in this way? And and she said, fine, because everybody who complained to her would just go and do this instead, which we did. And then I made the and then I made it along with these two people. I made our own reading challenge on Goodreads. This was over a decade ago. It's still active. Uh, I just don't have anything to do with it anymore. (laughs) But that was my first reading challenge. And one of the things that I learned from the people I worked with was the openness and the accessibility of uh, prompts. I also learned that people love participating in it when they know that they can create prompts subsequently, which I don't know if I've made clear yet or not. But I started with some big prompts for this year and and Tessa helped me flesh out the uh, the the sub challenges, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, this is definitely something that can grow organically as a community if if and I hope it does go beyond twenty twenty three. But you know that starting in January, I think was really important to have a big open prompt. So the January prompt that we're here to talk about today is a book you've been meaning to read forever. And before we talk specifically about your book first, Ryan, I I wanted to take a moment to talk about what other folks in the community have been reading for their picks in January. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question, Ryan. Without getting into the book in specific, what's it like to read a book for a book challenge that you end up not liking? So there's, there's, there's good and bad. So the good is that if it was not for this reading challenge, I certainly would not have, I may not have finished this book entirely. I may have just given up because one of the things I've learned as a reader is that there are too many books and not enough lifespan to read all the things I want to read. And so picking a 600 page novel for this challenge, I might not have finished it. I might have given up after the first two sections which would have been unfortunate because I I do think there was value in me finishing this book. But also I certainly would not have finished a 600 page novel in like 18 days. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm a fast reader, but, but it made me keep going back and, and making myself pick up the book rather than like, Oh, I'll start another book and then I'll come back to this and finish it when I feel like it, which, you know, I, I can read five other books that way and then come back to this. Mm -hmm. And then I would be like, I don't remember what's going on and haven't even, worse experience with a book that I ended up not really liking. <laughs> so the, the challenge worked in that sense, because I'm 600 pages into the year. And, the, you know, I, the challenge plus recording this podcast made it so that I, I finished this book in 
the shortest amount of time that I reasonably could. Yeah, I for the record, I, I just looked it up. I gave this book particular book that we'll talk about in the next segment. It does have a 4.0 from me. It's not my favorite by that author, but I definitely liked it better than you. I also did not like my book from January. Tessa, though, has had a different experience that you also alluded to, Ryan, which is the experience of picking a book challenge book right out of the gate. First one, side one, track one, 600 pages. Yeah, I. <laughs> this goes against the advice that we were talking about earlier. You should definitely not, for your January book, pick something that is over 500 pages. I think that that was probably a mistake. But I think that part of the issue is, is that a book you've been meaning to read forever, which was the January prompt, you tend to get stuck on things like, you know, the books that everybody says you should read or, you know, books that have just like are canon that have hung out on your list for a while or canon adjacent, you know, whatever you want to call that. And so I think that does sometimes lend itself to picking longer books you know, more literary books or more, you know, the those those really celebrated things that you're like, well, I ha- I should read that, which maybe wasn't the best interpretation of the prompt. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> maybe I should have actually thought about like, OK, like what's something that's more doable that I've been meaning to read forever? But ultimately, I think I might have liked my book better than you both did. But I agree, Ryan. I think the nice part about this prompt is that it does keep you coming back. Um, I did have to read some other things during this just for other podcasts and so on, but it did kind of help keep me on track. And one of the habits I've been trying to cultivate in 2023 is reading a little bit every day, um, at least a little bit every day. And so that this has also been a good book, I think, for that as well, because there is so much of it that it's like, okay, like I have to at least read 20 pages today, you know? And so that's, I think that That part of it worked. I'm not sure if the other part did. (laughs) So really quickly, and then we'll get into Ryan's book. We heard from several of our Mambo regulars about what they read for this month. Tessa, what did Melissa read? Melissa wrote, Hi, my January book was Bloody Jack, being an account of the curious adventures of Mary Jackie Faber Ship's Boy, the first in a series of many books about the character. I really enjoyed it. It was light enough to read quickly, but had some surprises as well. Smiley face emoji. Yeah, and <laughs> as I as I said on the Discord community, I actually presented at an academic conference on a panel with somebody who was talking about Bloody Jack. And so it was really interesting to see that book in the wild, to have it be read by a friend. That was really cool. On the other hand, Elise read Heir to the Empire, a book which Ryan and I are very familiar with and we'll (laughs) be talking about just a little bit later. It is not the book I didn't like, but it'll come up again in a bit. Elise, however said that it's not gripping her as much as she wanted it to, which is funny for a book you've been wanting to read forever, which I know, Ryan, actually, I know you were second chancing an author on this one. So I don't know if your expectations were as high as Elise's were, but uh, Elise says maybe just sticking to canon Star Wars after this, but we'll try to convince you that's a mistake later. So uh, Jack also sent in a short evaluation. Jack wrote, the book I read was Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets. For any any fans of The Wire, this is a book for you. All six of you who have actually watched it. (laughs) David Simon spent a year 
1988, the year I was born, in the Baltimore Police Department following the Homicide Department, I would recommend anyone who could handle true cop books, but also that, but that also show how messed up the system is, a.k.a. everything The Wire would show us later. By the way, uh, 1988 is the year Jack was born, not the year you were born, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I was reading what Jack had written. Oh, All okay. Of that was you, were, you were channeling Jack No, in Jack that, is two years moment. older than me, which I didn't know until just this moment. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I'm really interested in reading this book. I know that, or I, I say I know, I believe, Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe David Simon has a form of dementia at this point. And uh, it, it, it's, this was a really fascinating creative person. And uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, to me, I'm reminded of Michael J. Fox because of the uh, discourse coming out of Sundance. When, when, and I'm trying to say this in the best way possible. When, when an artist's capability is diminished, it really puts in perspective how great the art they created was. I mean, I think that I love Back to the Future because of Back to the Future, but I love it even more because of the way that Michael J. Fox has reinvented his life, his discussion of optimism uh, and and stuff like that. And I, I think about uh, David Simon even more so now, thinking about how his stuff is underappreciated. You know, everybody talks about him and his work on The Wire, but... It's the the joke is nobody's seen it, right? Nobody's actually like they talk about how brilliant this man is, but don't interact with his works. I've seen one season of The Wire. I love Treme. I loved it. Loved the hell out of that. Um, but I wanted to read this book too. I'm glad to hear it was good. Yeah, we actually had this conversation on Antioch's book club. We did a bonus episode with Matt from Lego Ankh More Pork. We recorded it the other day. It should be out here when this episode comes out. It should be out later the same week. But we had this conversation about Terry Pratchett because he had Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a few years before he died. And uh, his assistant, Rob, just came out with a biography of Pratchett, which I've been meaning to read, uh, called A Life with Footnotes. And he talks a lot about like the decline. He was an assistant who'd been with Pratchett for like his entire writing career. And he talks a lot about how like sad it was in the end, you know, having these conversations with Pratchett, like, oh, we already talked about that. Um, or you already wrote that or something like that. But it does play into the way you read the last Discworld books because the last one, The Shepherd's Crown, came out posthumously. And so there is this element of being able to read Pratchett thinking about the end of his life as he's writing, you know, these last books. And so, yeah, I, I definitely agree. It is interesting to go back and interact with uh, with these artists in that way. A friend of mine yesterday, uh, I was talking to them and we were, ta- somehow David Simon came up. I've seen the, the first, I think I've seen most, if not all of the first season of The Wire, but no more. And I should rectify that at some point. But I believe his most recent book ends with the revelation of his dementia oh. and him saying, here's a bunch of stuff that I probably wouldn't talk about if, I wasn't worried about not ever remembering it. And here's all the terrible things that go on behind the scenes right. uh, of making television. Yeah. I, I, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about Michael J. Fox. Like, would he be able to talk about, first of all, his struggle with addiction was a direct result, he says, of 
the diagnosis or sensing that something was wrong at any rate. But like, you know, would somebody be as open about talking about those struggles? I've seen the season of The Wire that's about because each season is about a particular current event. Like there's a story or there's storylines that go through the series, but you can kind of look at it as an anthology and you'll only be lost a quarter or so of the time. I watched the season about public education. Unsurprisingly. That structure does sound like the book that I'll be talking about. <laughs> I think The Wire has to be a monkey at some point. Yeah. I think it does. Now for something completely different. Finally, Lazy Red, Raw Spirit by Ian Banks. He describes it as a fun whiskey tour and travelogue about Scotland with added diatribes about Blair, Bush, and the Second Gulf War, which to me, all of those things read like the perfect Lasbert book. I mean, this is very unsurprising, lousy material. I mean, all that was missing was a discussion of X-Men. That was it. Are we sure he didn't write that book? I... <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I'm so excited that so many people responded. I know there are more people than just those four. We will, toward the end of the episode, talk about what the February prompt is and how to get involved. But for now... Let's talk about what Ryan's been reading. I brought my copy with me because podcasting is a visual medium. Yes, of course. <laughs> I read David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, which I checked on Goodreads. I added it to my want to read category August of 2016, a much more innocent time <laughs> in all of our lives. And the book itself is from 2014. So it was relatively new when I added it. It's now several years later, or I actually did read it. And, you know, I, I wanted to give some background on my experience with David Mitchell so up to this point. This was my second David Mitchell book. Uh, I read Ghost Written, which is his debut novel last year, because David Mitchell is someone who has been on my radar and has been on my, in general, like, he's a person I need to seek out and experience his work for myself, uh, in part because I really, I... When I first saw it, I enjoyed the movie Cloud Atlas, and I thought it was a like an experiment that maybe didn't work as well as the intent behind it, but I thought it was still like a good movie and very interesting. I've totally come back around on it. The more I've dived into the Wachowski's work, the more I appreciate that movie and again what it's trying to do, whether or not it's successful in that is, you know, in in the eyes of the viewer. But I appreciate Cloud Atlas even more now than I did when I saw it originally because of the other Wachowski things that I've seen, I feel like. And David Mitchell was involved in The Matrix Resurrections. And Sense8. Yes. Sense8, I need to watch. But um, that is that is a monkey for me, which I may cro also cross off my list this year, but we shall see. The Bone Clocks is told in six parts over the course of 59 years, which also would have fit into a future <laughs> Momble uh, reading challenge prompt. And maybe I should have saved it for that, but, but here we are. So overall, it's the story of Holly Sykes and her life, although she's only the main, she's only the point of view character in the first section titled A Hot Spell and Sheep's Head, which is the final section of the book. But she does appear fairly prominently throughout the ones in the middle to the point where you could call her the main character of the book. And I think that would be fair, but also it must be acknowledged that is it her story or not, I think is an open question. And so I struggled with this book. Um, I also had pretty much the same reaction to Ghost Written last year, which was I like the prose, although I feel like 
the bone clocks, the vocabulary especially, and some of the sentence construction is what I would call even more pretentious than is probably strictly necessary. And But of the six sections of the book, I truly only loved uh, the third section, which was which is called The Wedding Bash. And it's told from the point of view of Holly's husband, who is a war photojournalist. And that section jumps back and forth between his experiences in Iraq and specifically around the invasion of Fallujah during the second Gulf War that's already come up previously in this episode, and a wedding that he's attending with Holly and her family and their kids and it's their kid and this jumping sort of back and forth between those two experiences from his point of view. And I felt like there was a lot of commentary, like that's where the social commentary, like why, why write this book other than like just to tell a story shined through in a way that like actually grabbed me and like was really compelling. Like I read that section in like two days, whereas other sections took me like a week to sort of like march through because there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of unexplained things, and none of that stuff bothers me intrinsically. And I will say, I was surprised by how much was actually wrapped up by the end of the book, because there was a bunch of stuff that were left as hanging threads, and I was like, there's no way all of these are going to get like pulled together. And some of them aren't, but most more than I expected were. And so like, I would call this overall a satisfying read, but it didn't make me feel anything overall Mm -hmm. and i didn't enjoy his writing enough to be like well the intellectual part of my brain is just stimulated by experiencing this person's words and the way that they put ideas together and so i just kind of like i ended up rating it two stars because i was just like i just didn't other than that one section it didn't grab me and it's disappointing because uh, i have multiple people in my life who are huge fans of David Mitchell. Tori actually has, uh, I think, a quote from the Bone Clocks as a tattoo on her. And so there was that, like, I was like halfway through this book and there's like that added social thing of like, oh God, I don't like this. And a lot of my friends really do. And I like, I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but I feel bad because this is, it's one of those things where on paper, this is a thing I should like. Like this has all of the trappings of many other things that I like. And yet it just, does not co- did not come together for me at all. You know, as you describe your reaction to this book, and I think retroactively perhaps a little bit about Ghostwritten as well, I'm reminded of some of the things that, that Tessa said when she read Ghostwritten, which I think are very similar to what you've said just now. Am I, am I wrong? I also don't like David Mitchell based on the one book I read, which is Ghostwritten. I don't actually remember everything I had to say about it. Uh, I, it strikes uh, me as very similar. It, yeah, I mean, I think it is very similar. I also, as much as I love David Mitchell's collaboration with the Wachowskis, I am very suspicious of his relationship with Asian culture, which is also a problem that I have sometimes with the Wachowskis. And Ghostwritten especially, I haven't read The Bone Clock, so I, I don't know how much of that is there. Ghostwritten especially has a sort of problematic relationship sometimes with Asian culture as somebody who's trying to write about it as if they are not an outsider, but they are an outsider. And so that, that I think, again, I don't think there's anything necessarily bad in Ghostwritten. It's just something that makes me, that kind of makes me question a little bit about what he's trying to do exactly there. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of interwoven stories which Ghost Written has a lot of. And I really like the idea of... So 
some of the more supernatural elements of it, I think are very interesting, but I, I just have, I, I really struggle with literary stuff written by white dudes. I just do. And like, it's just not a point of view that I identify with a lot of times. I mean, there are white dudes whose stuff I like. I just, it's just very hard for me to get in the same headspace. There are a lot of characters in that book that are very misogynist and they are POV characters. And I think they're supposed to be, which is great. It's just not something that I connect to. And so I, I feel the same way. Like he's a good writer and I like a lot of the stuff conceptually that he's trying to do. It just isn't something that I connected with. Yeah. And the stuff about Asian cultures is, I would say, more, much more prominent in Ghostwritten to the point where I might not have picked up on some of the stuff in the same vein in Bone Clocks because it just doesn't feature as as much. There are some stuff with other cultures <laughs> uh, in there that... I could feel the same way, but there's enough of a twinge of fantasy elements to those sections that I, I'm like, I don't know enough about that actual culture. This feels like it could be something that is sort of a made up subculture of the culture he's depicting. I was shocked as all hell uh, after I finished the book and saw that it had won the World Fantasy Award yeah. because I would not consider this book fantasy. If anything, it... it tips towards i mean i guess it's not really science fiction either but it's almost like magic it's almost closer to magical realism than even because when i think contemporary fantasy i think like sexy vampires in urban environments Mm -hmm. yeah you know and like the dresden files and stuff or sean and mcguire yeah right yeah 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 this doesn't have any like what i would call traditional fantasy elements or overtly fantasy element like not even like the magicians where it's like we go to fantasy worlds that are that operate and our commentaries on fantasy worlds that you think of when you think of the world fantasy awards and this is like i said i think closer to magical realism in in the way that the supernatural elements are depicted and i found the explanation really interesting but again it just didn't move me and it actually uh without because i feel like if i if i name the other work I'm thinking of, it will spoil this book beyond <laughs> the terms of what we agreed to. But it's very interesting to me that Stephen King is a big fan of this book. And there's a sequel to one of his famous books that has a very similar plot element that came out the year before The Bone Clocks, which was recently adapted into a film that I very much love. And I do wonder if the experience of seeing that movie that features a very similar concept at the core of this book tainted maybe tainted my experience mm-hmm. because I was like, Oh, I I'm now familiar. I'm sort of familiar with this big reveal <laughs> concept is like, Oh, ho hum. Because I've met other characters who act, who operate this way and do the, the same kinds of things that these characters are doing. So maybe that's an element to it, but I don't, I don't think so just based on my reaction to the other sections. And I, I will say like, this also has, some heavily misogynist characters, again, who are meant to be and not depicted well for it. But, you know, it's not, it doesn't make it fun. Yeah, I, God, there's so many things uh, between the things that both of you have said. I, I think you're right about classifying David Mitchell perhaps more in the magical realism vein than perhaps science fiction or fantasy. But I, magical realism, I think, really does fit in the fantastic as well. So, I mean, it's kind of both. I also think we were talking about the Academy Awards before we started recording and the idea of a cumulative makeup career award 
I guarantee you anything that he won for the bone clocks is cumulative. One of the things that, and, and, and then another thing to say really, really quickly, when I started reading David Mitchell, he reminded me very much of James Clavell, somebody who is rather obsessed with, knowledgeable of Asian culture, but whether or not those two things make writing their writing legitimate is completely up for debate. I, I think the best of intentions are there, but the question is whether intentions are good enough in this case. David Mitchell did live in Hiroshima for many years. I think it's eight years. And I definitely resonate with him because I believe at least a year of that was the same time I lived there. And, you know, that it's it's interesting. You know, reading Ghost Written, I remember like I yeah, uh-huh. And then yep, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like seeing that and being like, yes, this 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 seems, this feels accurate to me, even though he was writing about a completely different end of the country than the one I was at. One of the big things about the Bone Clocks is uh, David Mitchell is very much writing a David Mitchell cinematic universe. Ghostwritten, Cloud Atlas, Thousand Autumns of, uh, of uh, Jacob de Zut, the Bone Clocks, Slade House, and Utopia Avenue are all part of a larger narrative. Uh, number nine, Dream and Black Swan Green. His other two novels are nominally connected, but not so much. And so I think the Bone Clocks is actually the weakest of those. Not to try to get you to read more, because I think that ship sailed. Although, if it hadn't, I would, pun intended, recommend The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zut, which is about sailors and ports in Japan. Um, it's his most James Clavell adjacent. But... There is a there is a story, a supernatural story that he's trying to track through his narrative. But I will also say the the whole thing about literary fiction, which I find very, very problematic to begin with. David Mitchell is definitely a quote unquote literary fiction person. And I'm not going to do an 80s music shout out for Jarrett today, but I am going to cite the laugh of the Medusa because I know you're thinking about that, Jarrett. I have to make sure Jarrett's listening, so I always cue him every episode. This is it. I, there are very few literary fiction authors I like, and there are even fewer men, particularly white men, because this, and it's a very binary way of thinking about it, but there's a second wave feminist idea about how women write through their bodies differently than men, which is what The Laugh at the Medusa is about. And, uh, you know, at the same time I started reading David Mitchell, I was reading authors like Sadie Smith and Jeanette Winterson, who I like far better normally, except David Mitchell just tells a story I'm really interested in. That's why I find it really fascinating that he has worked with the Wachowskis a lot. There's, I don't know, I don't know what to put my finger on. I honestly don't. I, I have no counter to any criticism of, of the book, Ryan, at all. I don't. It's just something about it. And, and that's the thing. I don't have any, like, here's why I didn't like this book. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a real, like, I'd have to think long and hard about what my thesis for the for my argument is, other than the fact that I personally was did not feel like it yeah. engaged the parts of my brain that stories I really get attached to engaged. I do have a lent copy of Utopia Avenue on my shelf. And so I, I am going to give that a shot eventually, just because I actually, I do enjoy books about music. Do you like Pink Floyd, Ryan? I enjoy Pink Floyd, especially now that they're woke. 
<laughs> I mean, the, the band in Utopia Avenue really is like you should be listening to Pink Floyd the entire time you're reading the book, which is what I did. <laughs> okay, that I, I can do. I and I I like early Pink Floyd yeah. a lot. Um, yep. Like their uh, uh, Astronomy Doname is maybe my favorite album of yeah. theirs. Their their debut, uh, which is also why I really enjoy the first Doctor Strange movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, Interstellar Overdrive, right? Very prominently. Yeah, yeah. And so, and that, I think that's the other piece of this that made it frustrating is because. I do like other authors sort of working in this world, like Don DeLillo is a lifelong favorite of mine. I enjoy at least a few books by Thomas Pynchon. Uh, I love Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad, which like that book, like I I found an emotional attachment and that is just as sort of like meta and, you know, anthology woven together. Like it has a very similar structure to Mm -hmm. the two David Mitchell books I've read. And this is just one of those things that like, it just bounces off of me for whatever reason. And, you know, overall, it's it's a bummer. It's a thing where I was like, oh, this is a cool new author that I can, like, dive into this world and, like, really, you know, dig into and pull apart and explore. And it's kind of like, well, I'll give it one more shot. And then, you know, if I like Utopia Avenue, I will read The um, Thousand Autumns for sure. But, you know, that's where I'm at yeah. right now. That first Pink Floyd album also has a song about a cat named Sam. I just want to point out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucifer Sam and Lucifer Sam. Yeah, I was like, the cat's first name is yeah. Lucifer. You should do a playlist <laughs> that is about rock musicians who yeah. love their cats. So it'd be about Sid Barrett and Freddie Mercury. Yeah, got it. Exactly. Say no more. I'm sure there are more, but those are the ones I, I think. think the, the line is yeah. that cat's got something I can't explain. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. It's a good. It's a good tune. That that album's really solid. Anyway, now for something completely different. But actually is very similar. Yeah, because again, we're, we're yes. going to stay with the magical realism. <laughs> and we're going to talk about an author I am much less familiar with. So I'm going to shut up and yeah. let you take it. So I read House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende, um, which was published in 1982. It was her debut novel. Uh, Allende is someone... So this was kind of two things for me. This was specifically a book that I had been needing to read for a while because Allende is such a huge figure in the Latinx community in terms of her writing. She's part of that like post Latin boom of writers. So if you think about Gabrielle Marquez and and Pablo Neruda and all of those people, she's like right after those people. And she's such a huge deal, especially to people who like magical realism, which is a term I kind of want to talk about a little bit. So this was kind of both a book I'd had had been on my list for a while, but also an author that had been on my list for a while. I had never encountered any of her other books. And this is one of two books that she's really most well-known for. The other one is City of the Beasts is her other one that she's really well-known for, but she's written quite a few books. So she's, she's a Chilean author. She's considered one of the most recognizable or influential writers in Spanish. I obviously read a translation because I don't read as well in Spanish, um, although I'd be very interested in knowing about different translations but the the basic plot of the book is that it is again one of those like really long interconnected set of stories but it's specifically about a life the life of the Treba family it spans four different generations and it traces 
sort of this post-colonial social and political upheaval in Chile. So I learned a lot about Chile because I don't know very much about the history of Chile as a, as a country. But there's a lot of like historical figures who sort of show up in this book too, although they're not named. So like the poet was someone that got named a lot in this. Like one of the characters sort of runs this house where like all of these strange society artists and figures sort of rotate through. And it talks a lot about the poet a lot. And that's Pablo Neruda. Which I kind of guessed because I was like, Pablo Neruda is Chilean, right? I was trying to like do the math on that at the same time. But there's also the candidate slash president, which is Salvador, Salvador Allende. Um, so there's sort of like these like parallel historical events. Um, it's also Allende working through the trauma of having to flee Chile during basically a military coup. So she, um, So she's sort of working through that as well. It's also supposed to be... It started as a letter to her grandfather who was dying, and then it kind of became this novel. So there's a lot about like her own family that's embedded in this. But the story, the story is sort of to- told from like three different perspectives. Um, it's really two. It's Esteban Treba, um, who's sort of the patriarch of this family, and Alba uh, Treba, who's like the last um, person in this family. Um, but what they're doing is they're sort of piecing together the story from not just their own memories, but also the diary of Clara, who is Esteban's wife, who she basically wrote all of the stuff that she observed all life down. And so they're like reading it and sort of piecing it together. The story has a lot of different narrators. There's like a third person narrator who is not quite Clara. It's sort of like somebody trying to interpret Clara's diaries into into something that's readable. But then also we get these first person interludes from both Esteban and Alba. Um, And so like you get different perspectives on the same event, you get different like interpretations of stuff that happens. There's sometimes where they kind of skip ahead and say like, oh, I didn't know this at the time this person was going to be important, but then I saw them. Obviously that's something that happens later. So there's a lot of like that kind of thing going on. It reads very much like a family record. Uh, it's probably the best way. I mean, I don't know about your family, Ryan, and if they have a lot of these kinds of things, but I know my mom's side of the family, they like to keep a lot of uh, these types of things. And so there's a, uh, I'm trying to remember her name. My mom still has it, but she has like a, it's like 50 or so pages. It's just my aunt, my great aunt sat down and like wrote down everything that she could like remember, like being told by her family about like since since my mom's side of the family came over to the U.S. And like she talked about her childhood. And so it's very much like that. It reads like somebody like tried to gather everything from um, anecdotes to like things that they could research and sort of put them all together in one big messy document. So that's kind of what's going on here. So it's a little bit messier, I think, than Mitchell, who tends to be a little bit neater about the ways that he kind of puts his stories together. But it is really fascinating because it does, it is so realistic in the way it wants to talk about this family and talk about how this family deals with what happens in Chile. But there is huge amounts of magical realism in this. Um, She's obviously very famous for her magical realism. But I thought maybe it would be nice to define magical realism for people who don't know. It's a style of literary fiction that paints a realistic view of the world while adding magical elements. And it kind of blurs the lines between fantasy and reality. Um, Sam, you have like a very specific definition of magical realism. I, I do. And I know looking at the notes here, 
it anticipates some of the things that you said. Magical, you mentioned Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You mentioned Isabel Allende, obviously. Gloria Naylor. Yes, Gloria Naylor. Writing about uh, an American author, but a black author writing about Gullah Geechee culture right where we, Tessa and I, live right now. You can also talk about, you can talk about Salman Rushdie. You could talk about, as magical realism, Haruki Murakami or Banana Yoshimoto. What you're, what you're hearing, or what I hope you're hearing, is that magical realism is very often non-white. And, and the, real, the best definition of magical realism comes from Neti Okorafor, who is a, a person of Nigerian descent, lives here in America, has very close roots to Nigeria and writes about, she writes in different genres, uh, whether you whether you want to call them, or as she calls them, African futurism or African jujuism. And she has talked a lot about the usage of the term juju. And she's, that's, that's our word. Mm-hmm. It's not your word talking to white people. And she has said very specifically about magical realism that, yes, it's a thing. Yes, it's a not white thing. And no, it shouldn't actually be called magical realism because the magic, what we call, we white people call magic are, are things that aren't called magic in uh, Laura Esquivel is another one. So Mexican culture, Chilean culture, Indian culture, Japanese culture, Nigerian or Igbo culture, Gullah Geechee culture. It's not magic. To call it magic is to is to devalue it. And so perhaps the best thing to say about magical realism is it is the often a valuation, a, a lifting up of non-white cultures. In many ways, it's celebrating the things that are important and the things that we would call magical. And I think when we use it, we're not using it in a pejorative way. But right. that was a bigger definition than you wanted. But <laughs> I was ready. I was thinking of your cat definition specifically, but ah, oh, oh, you want to yeah. hear the? Here's the Murakami definition of magical realism. If the book that you are reading is set in a world where a talking cat could walk up to you and you wouldn't be surprised, you're reading magical realism. <laughs> yeah, t- Tony Morrison is is my uh, often my go-to example for uh, magical realism. Yes. yes. Which is very interesting because Toni Morrison is writing magical realism as a uh, strategy to write against dominant American culture. So even then, it's it's still that uh, Emily Dickinson definition of telling things slant. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you here in a minute, Ryan, about your experience with magical realism. But just to kind of build off of what Sam said, I, I feel like magical realism, when we say it, we're talking about a very specific genre. But I think that there are a lot of people who have accurately problematized the term because the idea of magic, when when white culture, when European culture, when Western culture talks about it, is very different than the way that quote unquote magic is imagined in other cultures. And I I can't I cannot remember who said this. It was someone on Twitter pointed out that magical realism, when talking about someone like Allende, when talking about uh, especially Latinx cultures, is really problematic because 
it makes it seem like Allende specifically is blending something that she knows isn't true with something that's realistic. When she said everyone down there believes this, like this is not to them. It's just realism that ghosts would walk around the house, you know, or that, you know, and so by calling it magical realism, you're, you are uh, misrepresenting um, what the author is actually trying to do. Um, so that's why I, I find the term a little problematic because it does seem like kind of a white thing that got slapped on a certain brand of not white culture. Although it's funny that David Mitchell also gets put in that category as well. But it, it is also kind of the best way to describe it. Um, I mean, I think if you're not doing it maliciously or in lack of a better term, I don't know. Ryan, what's your experience with this genre? Yeah, I, I definitely have have some experience. And the way that I think about it is that you're setting is very much like our world but there are things that cannot be explained by science or what we would what what western culture would call rational thinking which to me doesn't mean that they're not true and i sort this is my first time becoming aware that it has become a problematic term because you know i learned about it in high school english class and it was it was very much presented as like this is a technique that authors use <laughs> to make points about the world that you know may bend may bend what we think about as reality and so it was presented to me as a very sort of for lack of a better word non-denominational <laughs> label <laughs> you know like that like it like we read beloved and like we, you know we talked about it in that and we talked about it in heart of darkness which has some magical realism elements to it because you know this was like a senior english survey course where we were reading a bunch of different novels and constantly like comparing them and you know uh using one to inform the uh, how we experience the others and you know combining them in interesting ways and stuff and so like you know throwing around that term with david mitchell it's like oh there's some supernatural stuff in this book but it doesn't to me it's like it's almost like it doesn't fall into science fiction doesn't really fall into fantasy doesn't really fall into horror which obviously is a genre that has a lot of things that could be described as magical realism, like Pennywise the Clown is, you know, sort of the one supernatural running through, you know, element that runs through that very, very long book. But I think, so, like I said, I, t I tend to think of it as a tool in the toolbox. And certainly if I'm reading something from a culture that's not my own, you know, I... Like, I'm sort of taking it the way that, like, Umberto Eco writes about Christianity. Like, I'm just, I'm taking the sort of at face value that, like, whether or not the author believes it to be true, the characters in the book certainly react as, as if this is a real thing happening. But it is a thing that, like, I cannot explain based on my own life experience that this is a, th this is a thing that would probably freak me out if it happened to me. <laughs> But I'm recognizing the characters in the book may react very differently, which is totally fine. So I, I don't know if that that that's just me just, you know, word vomiting about <laughs> my experience with magical realism. I, I think that I mean, that's definitely the way that I learned about magical realism, too. And it's only been it's actually been kind of on my own that I picked up on all of this. Uh, again, Nettie Okorafor, who's a great Twitter follow, is probably one of the best. Both her and her cats. Educators, yes. And her cats are definitely Based not cats. of this world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's really interesting, though, when you think about magical realism from... And, and I would say it's not even necessarily just a non-white thing. I think Russia has a very deep magical history, or magical realism history. If you 
it's the as always it's the eurocentric thing that gets us in the end because what's the closest analog of magical realism it's it's on on the the continent and the islands off to the side it's thomas mann it's marcel proust it's james joyce it's the greatest hits of white dude modernism in america magical realism is poe you know so we've got these institutions who are the closest analog to what we would call magical realism from other cultures. And, you know, they're they're kind of talking along the same lines, but it's just not the same. Right. I think mainly what people object to is that anytime you have a genre that tends to be populated by, well, you're not white, so we're going to put you in this genre, That's you got to deconstruct that that term, especially because so many of these cultures are so different from each other. And so, like, trying to pin down, like, what's magical and what's, you know, part of, you know, what's, what's magical, what's religious, like what's, uh, you know, something that they just think is part of life, you know? And so it's, it, it is something that I think is useful, but you have to interrogate that usefulness at the same time. But coming back to Allende, um, <laughs> she, her I mag- thought this was going to be a short episode. Can we talk about oh, how well. wrong I was? Let's, let's do oh, that. Let's talk about well. how Sam was wrong. Uh, anyway, <laughs> So you're like it'll make the episode too long. It'll make the episode longer. Um, so her thing, her magical realism mainly comes through the character of Clara, who is the matriarch of the family. She's married to Esteban, but she, you know, sees sees ghosts and she communicates with them, and and she has uh, telekinesis, and it's kind of funny because her family's all like, well, maybe she'll just grow out of it. But like she or like many people have this, they just grow out of it, but she never does. And so like, you know, it's kind of this stuff or she can see the future like she predicts a lot of great disasters and she's like writing down, you know, everything as she as she goes through it. And so it is very interesting, like perspective that we get, um, especially because she is able to see these um, these things before they happen. And she's trying to react to them appropriately, but there's also like this sort of fatalism of like what's going to happen is going to happen. And it is a lot of times about her relationships with the people in her family and how being more in tune with the spirit world or with the dead often separates her from the real issues that the rest of her family is having. But then we also get Esteban, who really is represents this very conservative, very... Like, I mean, it's funny because it's Chile and I don't know much about the politics of Chile, but I do recognize the things that he's saying. Like, we can't pay the indigenous people. They'll just get drunk on that money. Or I lifted myself up by my bootstraps. And so why, you know, why should I care about the poor? You know, um, but there's also a big socialist movement in Chile. And this, of course, becomes part of his family. So like his granddaughter is a green haired socialist. And, you know, like it, it becomes like this family conflict amidst all this stuff. But it's also about family trauma and how, you know, something that happens in the life of Clara you know, fairly early on, you know, gets revisited upon like her grandchildren. And so, you know, it's very much about those types of things. And again, like if you like very messy family narratives, like that's it's going to be something that you enjoy. As someone who didn't know much about Chile, just even reading this gave me like a better understanding, I think, of like the history and like some of the different cultural attitudes towards different things. This is a challenged book. It is not currently, I think, on the 
challenged book in our county. Could you, could you hear the dramatic turn to me? <laughs> could you hear it out there? Uh, but this is a book that has been challenged. I mean, for the same reasons that Toni Morrison is challenged. It's always Toni Morrison for whatever reason. Well, Isabella, um, if, well, Isabella Allende is not white. I think you yeah. said why she was challenged. I think you mentioned that already. It does did I have, say that out loud? Yeah, I did. It does have some pretty frank discussions of sexual violence. and uh, Which doesn't exist in white culture, yeah, it doesn't exist by the at way. All, and domestic abuse. Um, also. And just abusive landlords. Um, so They're also not a thing. Yeah. So yeah. So if you want to support somebody who's challenged, uh, you know, Aliana is still alive, so you can support her by by buying this book. I gave it uh, four point five stars um, on Story. I will say it is an exhausting read at times. Um, I when I would sit down to read it, I like couldn't put it down, but then afterwards, I would feel like I just needed to like take a nap, just because it is so. It's very dense, but it doesn't feel dense, if that makes sense. It has so much information and so many different characters, and like it does jump around from perspectives. So that can be a little challenging at times, but it's not something that deterred me from reading it. Um, so I would definitely read it if you if you're interested in these things or if you have kind of time to like space out your readings a little bit. Yeah, I think from everything you've described, I definitely need to add it to my like want to read list and it's it's interesting because a lot of the, the way that you described it one it's very interesting to me that we're talking about this and the bone clocks back to back because there is there are similar ideas and things that are, are seem common to both but also the the other thing that i keep thinking of as you're describing this book is that it seems like a chilean counterpart to the godfather oh in that, like, it's this family story, you know, in especially in the Godfather movie sequels, there's a lot of, you know, real historical events that play a role in the story of the family being, you know, of the family Corleone that's being told uh, in those movies, you know, like the Cuban Revolution and, you know, the, the death of the Pope and everything. And I was like, oh, like, I've, I haven't read you know, Mario Puzo's The Godfather because the movies seem like enough of that for me. <laughs> Apparently but... they're not very good. I don't know. Yeah. I could buy that. I know there's some weird stuff in the, uh, there's some weird sexual stuff, at least in the original book that was dropped from the movie, but that's sort of infamous. But anyway, but that, I like that sort of multi-generational, like learning about history that you might not know about while reading a very like, you know, engaging fiction story at the same time, you know, or, or somewhat fictionalized story, you know, since you, you mentioned there's some autobiographical elements. So it, it definitely sounds like something that's that's certainly up my alley. Yeah. And one other thing I'll say before we turn to Sam, we did not plan. the. I didn't even know you were doing David Mitchell until like earlier this week. <laughs> uh, so we did not plan these books back to back. Just to compare what I've read of David Mitchell to this, though, I found things I could connect to emotionally in this much more than I did in David Mitchell. And again, I think just based on Sam and knowing Tori and knowing other people who love David Mitchell, I think he's just someone that you either connect with or you don't. And that doesn't mean anything about the quality of his books. It just means there's something about him specifically that that either you you connect to or you don't. But I did not have that problem with Alien Day. Well, I think that's true of a lot of things. Yeah. The Wachowskis are somebody yeah, I didn't connect with until later, until I had a shared experience, right? Yeah. I think that's very true. I read Star Wars. <laughs> you didn't have enough in December. Well, you needed more. You know... <laughs> no, you you truly, I mean, unless it's The Rise of Skywalker, I don't really think you can ever have too much Star Wars. But I'm also exhausted reading 
between censorship bans, writing about the canon and young adult literature and all the things that are in my book. I'm just, I can't. It's, it's, it's too much to, to read heavy magical realism. I think I'm like too behind on Murakami, which I find unforgivable, but it's fine. It's whatever. I decided to read the, the Darth Plagueis novel during the 12 days of Star Wars, and then I didn't read it because <laughs> had it checked out from the library, I was ready to go. And something struck me about the cover of the book from, from the library, the, the cover of the ebook. And so I Googled it and I learned that a couple of years ago, Del Rey has started this series of repackaging, republishing called the Star Wars Essential Legends Collection. And I thought, I'll bite. Let's look and see what this is. And so now that essentially the Legends universe has been closed up and replaced by the canon stuff, Del Rey took it upon themselves to do like an anthology kind of situation. And they, what they're doing is they're repackaging and re-releasing them together three at a time in waves. And Darth Plagueis is at wave three. And if you've ever met me, it's wrong to start in wave three. <laughs> so I started with wave one. And that is what brought me to Stover's novel Shatterpoint for this. Uh, the, the other two novels in Wave 1 are Heir to the Empire, which I have also reread this month. And then the first Darth Bane novel, which I haven't gotten to yet. I hopefully will read before January is out, but we'll see. Uh, very, very quickly to note about the Essential Legends collection. Kevin J. Anderson is not a part of it yet, and I know that makes Losbert gleeful. So... If I, if I can chime in real quick, I will say it also makes me gleeful <laughs> because I wasted too many too much of my youth on Kevin J. Anderson. But the other thing I will say is uh, I read the first Darth Bane novel while I was at Star Wars Celebration wow. last year. That was my like, I'm waiting in line by myself for a thing. So I'm going to read a Star nice. Wars book uh, surrounded by Star Wars things. And it, it was a good feeling. Um, <laughs> I had to buy the sequels to that. Before the mass mm -hmm. market paperback went out went out of print because they had just announced yeah. that they were going to reissue that whole trilogy and I need them all to be right. the same size and format because that's my that's my cross to bear. <laughs> but I will say the the first Darth Bane novel is very fun in a very late nineties yeah. early two thousands edge lord <laughs> extreme kind <laughs> okay. of way. Like I found it very fun and very silly. But also very, like the good version of that where like you can sort of laugh along with it that this guy is like so ridiculously badass and like, you know, the main character is it, like is the kind of character that has been described as like a, a Mary Sue type where you're like, this is just an overpowered character yeah. that is having fun being evil. And I was like, you know what? In this context, I'm going to roll with it because it went to some places I wasn't expecting and I had a good time. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's great, but I had a good time. We haven't done our podcasting as a visual medium yet this week so i just no, want we y'all at the beginning well we're gonna do another one okay. then. <laughs> i just want everybody to imagine <laughs> the look on ryan's face when i say the following i parted with my first edition first printing of timothy zahn's heir to the empire many many years ago i don't have it i don't, I, I had it there's a tear there's a tear in the corner of my eye <laughs> first printing i think i told the story during one of our star wars episodes that like i was i remember seeing 
the first time I saw a Star Wars book mm-hmm. that was not an adaptation of no. the movies. And it blew my mind that they existed. And this would have been, Air of the Empire would have, was in paperback. So it would right. have been like 92 or 93. And then I dove into that and the, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but there was a a young reader series about a lost Jedi prince yep. named Ken who lived in an underground city on Yavin 4 who turned out to be the grandson of Emperor Palpatine. Um, Yeah. And I think the fifth or sixth book in that series is called Zorba the Hutt's Revenge. It's like, it's either the best or the worst, and I will leave that up to everyone else to decide for themselves. So I, really quickly, and I want to say a couple words about Heir to the Empire before we talk about Shatterpoint, because I want to talk about how Elise is wrong. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The Kevin J. It's really funny that Kevin J. Anderson, like, you know, when you're I knew when I was reading the Jedi Academy series that this man is a hack. I did not yet know what a hack was, but I knew he was one. So, like, I, I understood. Now, what I think what's really interesting is that the sequel trilogy is predicated on Kevin J. Anderson's Jedi Academy gone wrong, basically. Like, Kevin J. Anderson mm-hmm. is the first one to officially publish... Luke starts a Jedi Academy and perhaps JJ Abrams or Ryan Johnson both took glee in subverting that. Maybe. I don't know, but there's some parallel. I mean, there's some stuff that goes wrong at oh, sure. the Kevin J. Anderson Jedi Academy. Cause I also read that. I read that too young to know that there were bad books. <laughs> that's when I learned. That's, that's about when I learned. That, that's yeah. like a, a mark of like adolescence. Now, right? I, I will say from childhood and adolescence. Now really quickly though, I think that the edited anthologies, the tales from Jabba's palace, the Moss Eisley cantina, I, mm-hmm. the bounty hunters, those three, I think they've got some good stuff in it, even though they're edited by him. Agreed. They're not written by him. I, so I've read Heir to the Empire probably half a dozen times at this point. I have a uh, what Nick Hornby calls the best of all bad memories, which is when you can read a book for the second or third time and it's like the first time. All I remember from the trilogy is the big twist that happens. And I remember that Mara Jade, I love Mara Jade, has not diminished over these years. She hates Luke with the fire of a thousand suns. And it is just because he doesn't understand for a long time why he's like, why are you so mad at like, it's comical is how it reads. Like she is like cartoonishly angry at him. (laughs) And I love her so much. Uh, I have said before that I think Dr. Afra is kind of shades of Mara Jade. This is also the novel that gives us Thrawn, who has been brought into the official series with a different backstory, also told by Timothy Zahn, which I haven't read yet. But but I think it holds up really well. It's a it's a fun story. It also gives us the idea that Han and Leia are married and she is pregnant with twins. It gives us a little bit more about Wookiees. It gives us more about Bothans. You know, the spies who gave us the second Death Star plan. It introduces a... Where's their movie? It introduces a species called, and I will probably pronounce this incorrectly, the Nagri, who are the basis of Darth Vader's helmet design. It also brings us a species of, I don't know, large salamander that can suppress the force. It brings us the idea that Jedis were cloned as well. 
lot of stuff in there. A lot of good stuff that really has defined the way many people have thought about Star Wars. In some ways, I would say if you have Lucas and Kirshner as the two people who really formed our biggest ideas about Star Wars, Timothy Zahn's number three. What do you think, Ryan? I would agree, and I was just double checking that the uh, the Nagri are actually can- also canon because they show up in at least one of them shows up in Rebels, oh, neat. which is which is super fun. But yeah, no, I I would agree, and I think what I like about Zahn is that he writes Star Wars with a bit more of a science fiction yes. bent than Lucas does, and I feel like it's closer to stuff in the original Lee Brackett draft of. Empire Strikes mm-hmm. Back because she's also a science yeah, like yeah, more yeah. of a hardcore science fiction writer. And so I think it I think it brings that aspect out and elevates it and actually introduces science fiction concepts to the force like this salamander that that blocks the force from happening and you know there's a bunch of other super fun characters that are introduced over the course of the trilogy um like former smugglers that now own a Star Destroyer now that the Empire has been mostly uh, dealt with at this point. So there's 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 like military surplus stuff that's happening. Um, there's things that connect to what we all thought were the Clone Wars mm-hmm. prior to episode two, um, which is very fun. And there's cloning, which again is goes back to that you know, our understanding of what that one line in that one movie (laughs) might actually mean. And I think there's some stuff that's going to happen in Bad Batch and upcoming, potentially upcoming this season, episodes of The Mandalorian that will touch on some Timothy Zahn ideas. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, I got that impression as well, just from what I've seen so far. I also think... so. To, to pick up on what you said, I read the 20th anniversary edition, which has footnotes from Zahn and Ooh, his fine. editor, or really his liaison with Lucasfilm, I guess. Uh, and so there is a lot of note. There are a lot of notes about Timothy Zahn's ability to write naval, use naval terms, you know, to basically give that idea that we really get from the early seasons of Star Trek original series. That flying in space is a lot like, you know, navigating a ship on the sea. And uh, he brings in some of the dogfighting stuff, too. Like, he's a very warfare-forward sci-fi writer and brings that to bear here. And I think that's really helpful. Yeah, it's a really fun book. I can't wait to read Dark Force Rising again, which is in wave two of the Essential Legends. Now, I did not i want to say this very clearly did not like shatterpoint and i can tell you why in one sentence it is star wars apocalypse now starring mace windu (laughs) you could not describe a book i'd want to read less why they didn't put the first x-wing book in this wave none of which i have read yet i couldn't possibly say but uh yeah shatterpoint is basically about the, the Jedi Council send Mace Windu to his home planet, which is a Vietnam, very much, it's Vietnam, and to a place where they should not really be fighting at all, like Vietnam. And Mace Windu has to go find Kurtz, I mean his former Padawan, who has gone native. I told you everything about Heart of Darkness Apocalypse Now is true in this book, and it's not good. Just 
problematic in its right. own right. Yeah. Right. And it's basically the, his Mace Windu's discovery that what he knows about the conflicts between the separatists and uh, the Republic and the systems that get caught in the middle who don't really carry the way everything he knows is basically wrong. And it is that same de-evolution that you see in Conrad's book and then the adaptation of, you know, an apocalypse now. The other thing is we, we finally get to know. So I know a lot of people like this book because it gave us Mace Windu, which a lot of people wanted. You know, when Phantom Menace came out, Mace Windu was the rare action figure that they only made so many of. And I finally found in half, by the way. But that I still have. I don't have Heir to the Empire, but I have the Mace Windu episode one new in box. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know what to do with them. Anyway, the point is that his special skill is called the shatter the shatter point he can see the shatter point which is basically his way of it's kind of like his he's basically sean spencer from psych okay he is basically able to anal to like pause and the little music comes on and he looks at the situation and he goes that one thing over there is the thing that will caught that will have the most impact that's why he's such a badass, right? Because he can see somebody's weak point. He can do this. He can do that. And that's his special power. This is also something that is picked up later in canon universe. His guilt over what happened at the end of episode two. And he, you know, it's basically pointed out to him something that he knows, which is if he had just said to level that arena, the Clone Wars would have never happened. But Anakin would have died. But Obi-Wan would have died. But uh, but Padme would have died. And it's like, who cares, man? You could have stopped a whole damn war. And so some people find these ideas interesting. I did not. I did not like it. I mean, if Mace Windu was a Vulcan, we know what choice yeah, he would have right. made. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have read Shatterpoint. It's been many years. <laughs> so I, I just want to preface that it's been many years since I read Shatterpoint, probably whenever my local library got it in between, because this was published in 2003. So this is written before Revenge of the Sith is written, or is public, at least. And so from my memory, the characterization of Mace Windu in this book is very different than the Mace Windu that we've talked about in our Revenge of the Sith episode, which is very much informed by his characterization in that movie and subsequently his depiction in the Clone Wars series, where he is sort of like Anakin's main antagonist across his growing up. And so this feels like it is like reading it now it could feel like a mace windu reclamation project but i don't know that the character deserves one necessarily and i think his depiction in he's either in one or two episodes of tales of the jedi i think is a much more interesting version of the character you know i i think they picked this because they wanted some some prequel era novels to be represented because there is at least del rey understands that there is a whole segment of the fandom that is primarily driven by uh, the prequels. I know that the Yoda Dark Rendezvous book, which I also read but do not have no memory of, is part of that overall release calendar. I saw the Kenobi book, which I actually just read uh, prior to the canon TV series from last year. Um, that I would recommend. And that is like Darth Plagueis. That's one of the like the tail end of before they wiped the slate clean and moved all that stuff into Legends. Because uh, that is a that's a 2010s 
book. So Wave 2 is the sequel, the second book in the Darth Bane series. It's Rule of Two. The second book in the Heir to the Empire trilogy, Dark Force Rising. And also The Last Command. But also, because there's four, Rogue Squadron, the first one, by Stackpole. Which I'm looking forward to reading. I've never read before, but a lot of people really like it. I there loved that whole series as it was coming out. It, I was obsessed with it. And if if anything, my major complaint about the Disney era is that we have not had enough Star yeah. Wars in our Star Wars. <laughs> like dogfighting and space battles and all that kind of stuff. So th- those are ones where I, I might actually try to go back and reread them and hope they hold yep. up to my like now misty <laughs> and foggy memories of them. But I think I, I think there's a lot of good there. And I, I will say in in not in Shatterpoint's defense, but Matthew Stover is a very good Star Wars author. And I very much enjoy I think his I have them packaged together as a, as a trilogy. There is Labyrinth of Evil, the Revenge of the Sith novelization, mm-hmm. and then the uh, it's called something like the rise of darth vader i think those first two are both written two of them are written by matthew stover the third one's written by james lucano who wrote darth plagueis and is is also one of my favorite star wars authors but that they package it together as the dark lord trilogy or the darth vader trilogy um those would be worth seeking out if they come a part of this collection or it's i have like it's like a big trade paperback that has all three that i'm sure is i mean hopefully it's still pretty cheap used and out there yeah, I just it was it was really interesting after spending all the time we did with Star Wars, getting back to this universe and really appreciating how much really what Heir to the Empire really did. I mean, Rogue Squadron is seated in that book. It is an idea that is based on I mean, so much of what we see now is based on Timothy's on, which is nice. I mean, it could have been Kevin J. Anderson. <laughs> and if if I got to pitch a book to Lucasfilm, I would pitch a book that is about the second tier characters in the sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like I would want to write, you know, a like a comics book. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, all centered around Rose, who like the only reason I wouldn't propose a Rose book is because I feel like she deserves her own uh Disney Plus yeah. series. But that's you know. But whatever, there's stories there to be told about what happens after episode yeah. nine, um, even though I don't think anybody at Lucasfilm has really given it too much thought just yet, uh, at least that I'm aware of. But, I, you know, I think the potential is there for still all kinds of Star Wars stories. You know, we were going to get Rangers of the New Republic before mm-hmm. someone revealed themselves as a yeah. uber shithead and threw away a lot of money over very dumb beliefs. But the it'll be interesting. It's interesting that Filoni is playing in the same time yeah. period that Zahn was playing in when he wrote the the first Thrawn trilogy. As kind of a way to to close this out, I think probably the best reason to go back and read some of these Essential Legends collection is to see that there are ways to tell for people who aren't completely convinced yet. There are ways to tell Star Wars stories outside of the main films. And there are better ways than others. You know, just there are so many possibilities out there. And we're getting to see some of them. I really hope we'll see more. But enough about Star Wars. Maybe this is the last time I talk about Star Wars. Maybe. Uh, Don't make promises you can't keep. Surprise, episode 12, everybody. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So I want to really quickly right here plug... Our next month's challenge, 
which is to read a book about filmmaking or film history. February is right smack dab in the middle of award season. So I thought it was a really good time to double down on film. A lot of us will be reading Easy Riders, Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind. It'll be fun. It'll be a good time. But before we go today, let's just take a couple of moments to talk about the challenge within a challenge, which is in the first three months of 2023, before the Hugo Award nominations come out in April, we are taking some time to dive deep into romance novels, both subgenres of romance novels, Regency, historical, supernatural, that kind of stuff, right? As well as some romance novel tropes, second chances, enemies to lovers, I believe are in there, you know, stuff like that. And so just a quick check-in to to talk about what we are or will be reading. I will go first. What I read this month, I finished it this morning as a matter of fact, is a book called Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan. It is a second chance romance novel. And I would recommend this book. I would also go beyond that and recommend the subscription book box service that sent it to me which is called Authentic. It is a black woman-owned business. And of the book boxes I've subscribed to, which is several over the last couple of years, this one is undoubtedly the best. There are usually every month, there's a choice of like uh, contemporary fiction, romance, mystery thriller, that kind of thing. And you get themed things with the book, you know, candle, skin care, chocolate, that kind of stuff. It's very good. It's very interesting. It's very nice. Before I Let Go is a book that I got a few months ago. It is about, it's set in Atlanta. It is about a couple. The The author is black. The characters are black. It was very good to read something, again, outside of what I would normally pick, but it's very much a romance novel. And as I'm becoming more familiar with those tropes, guess what? They translate to different <laughs> cultures and different people. Surprise. <laughs> but this is about a couple who has gotten divorced and is they are navigating their way post-divorce, post-mental health crisis uh, about how to continue to co-parent and own a business together in Atlanta. Did I mention it was Atlanta? That's important. Uh, Charlotte has a cameo, the city. Uh, Noda, <laughs> shout out to Noda. And it's just, it's, it's got some interesting stuff in it. My least favorite thing about romance novels are the actual romance. I guess specifically, I mean, sex. I just don't I was care. Gonna say, you mean sex it's, scenes. I do. <laughs> I do. It's Gotham. I don't care. But there was enough. I mean, to me, that's the really good mark of a romance novel. Does it have other stuff I care about? Yeah. Right? So I did. I liked it a lot. I would recommend it. Uh, the other book that I've started I don't actually know if this is a romance novel or not yet, because I don't know how it's going to go. But I've started reading Lessons in Chemistry. It's by Bonnie Garmus. That is a book that a lot of book clubs read. It is being turned. It is being turned into an Apple Plus series starring Brie Larson. Hooray! Yay. So that good enough for me. As long as we're not doing Room again, I like Brie Larson. Turns out my first interaction with Brie Larson was really just not fair. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so 
Uh, it has romantic elements. I don't know if it's a full-blown romance or not. I don't care. I wanted to read it. So, you know. But I've got other good stuff in store. But before I let go, for sure, uh, let me... Yeah, Tessa, you okay. have you are working. I am working on one. So the romance normally, queen over here. Normally, I would have read like several romance novels by now um, because I'm always reading a romance novel. But I made the mistake, again, of reading a 500-plus page book for January. Plus, I'm reading a book a month for my other podcast, Danny Ogg's Book Club, which is the podcast where we're reading all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. So I was also reading The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, which is an episode that should come out at the end of February. So I did not get very far through the first romance book. I'm hoping to quickly catch up in February, but I am working currently on my Regency pick, which is A Duke, the Lady, and a Baby by Vanessa Riley. One of the things that I didn't mention at the beginning of this is that I've kind of made myself also a sub-sub challenge where I'm trying to make 50% of the books I read this year for this challenge to be by not white mm-hmm. authors. Um, because I don't, I think that that's something that I intentionally need to integrate into my reading habits because of the way publishing goes. It's just not something that automatically happens. So, um, especially in my romance picks, there are a lot of um, non white romance authors, but they're harder to find for a lot of reasons. Um, Alyssa Cole is another one that uh, I'm going to be reading later on. I love her stuff. I'm reading a new to me one for this challenge, so I'm excited about it. But this book is basically, um, it is Regency. It is um, about a West Indian heiress, Patience Jordan, who basically, right before the beginning of the novel, her English husband, um, she marries somebody in England, she moves there, he commits suicide, she thinks it's a murder, and because she thinks that, she's basically kind of gaslit into being locked up away in Bedlam, away from her baby, Um, and she escapes from that because she wants to get her baby back, but of course, by that time, the baby has come into the custody of a distant relation of her husband, a duke. Um, and so she basically has to pretend to be the nanny of her own baby while trying to get the baby back. And of course, like sparks ensue between her and the duke. It's like, I mean, it's like Jane Eyre, but like less creepy. Um, so it's pretty good so far. Uh, the The main thing that I've really been enjoying about it is that it's dual POV. So it keeps... Um, it goes back and forth between the point of view of the Duke and Patience. And what I really love about it is that the Duke's chapters are written in pretty straightforward Regency romance prose. Like it's third person. It's very like, um, and then this happened and then this happened and he said this and she said this. Whereas the stuff from Patience's perspective is written more in the tradition of like Trinidadian literature. So it's first person. It's more stream of consciousness. There's a lot more, magical realism on her side and so it's it's very interesting i've never read a romance novel like this so i'm excited to finish it all right and ryan i know you're gonna point us to what you are going to be reading very soon go ahead yeah i'm gonna uh check out anatomy a love story uh by dana schwartz uh which is set during uh the regency period because i believe it starts in 1800 or the early 1800s it's a recommendation from my wife, who has come to know Dana Schwartz through her podcast, Noble Blood. This is a YA romance about a woman who wants to become a surgeon. And you can see how that could be a conflict in a book set in the early 1800s. 
And I, it's funny, I just pulled up Dana Schwartz on Wikipedia to just double check because I couldn't remember the name of her podcast off the top of my head. And I saw, oh, she's 30. That's my mm-hmm. age. And then I realized that she is born seven to eight years after me. <laughs> and I felt old again. Because in my head, I'm still 30. But uh, it's a... I would say that my reading habits tend to be roughly 50-50 fiction to nonfiction, uh, and my wife is probably 80-20 nonfiction to fiction. So her recommending a fiction book as she is trying to dip her toes into a little bit more of romance novels, you know, it carries carries a lot of weight. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. I think Anatomy is a really good place to dip your toes into that. Yeah. Dana Schwartz might be best (laughs) known for Noble Blood, which I think really could bear the subtitle the royals are the darndest people. It's the interesting and funny stories about royalty. Uh, she is also she has also written for She Hulk, the the comic, and has a credit on one of the episodes of the the TV show. Her book "Choose Your Own Disaster," which is a choose your own adventure book, but also a memoir, is also a very good read. I would recommend. It is always funny but harrowing in some points because it's very frank about discussions about things that she's gone through in her life with with body image and some other things some of which i when i read it i was like oh god i feel this way too so weird anyway and by the way the uh sequel to anatomy immortality is coming out i believe in march it's about to happen it's happening soon anyway good job team we did it next time colby is back the king Holy of podcasting returns. as the visual medium will be back with us to talk about The Last of Us, that uplifting video game that has been turned into an HBO series. We will be talking about both. Good times. In the meantime, Ryan, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me uh, on Movie John, uh, writing there uh, as often as I am able to find the time and the subject matter to write. Um, I've take, sort of taken January off in reviewing new things, um, but I am seeing the new M. Night Shyamalan movie next week for review. So that'll be something. <laughs> I, I truly, I, tru- I mean, hometown pride aside, I do like most of his movies and i find him fascinating so it'll it'll be it'll i'll enjoy writing about it even if i don't enjoy the movie itself which i know nothing about and have not watched the trailer yet but aside from that if you want to follow me more (laughs) more frequent with more frequency uh you can find me on twitter and letterboxd and storygraph under silber whatever that's with a b uh, and to save Sam the trouble, Movie John is spelled uh, movie J A W N, <laughs> which, as a Philadelphian, I forget that I have. Yeah, to we spell don't know it what the hell that is. <laughs> which is apparently very close to what John actually means. So it, it's it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> Tessa. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at the By Paradox. You can also find. My writing on Movie John, I am currently doing a monthly column on cyborgs and androids in film called Artificial Bodies, Artificial Lies, Lives, Artificial Lives. You can also find me on my other podcast, which I've mentioned before, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where we are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find me online on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd and Storygraph 
at Melody Valentine, the inaugural edition of my new series on Movie John, Phone Booths and DeLoreans, A Cinematic Guide to Time Travel, has dropped. That's really fun. I am also review capping, <laughs> is what I think I've decided to call it. Uh, <laughs> the Immortal Universe and Rice's Immortal Universe show Mayfair Witches for as long as I can stand it. It's not that long of a season. I can probably hang in tough there. As long as Emily wants to hang tough with me, I'll keep writing them. It's a good time. It's so. really fun when I hear her writing these because she's just like cackling the whole time. And it's just like a really fun background noise. Yeah, it's it's wow. Such a silly show. But you know what? It's okay. Uh, my grand unifying theory about Anne Rice is she loves Lestat. I mean, Even obviously. when he's not a part of the book. She finds a way. <laughs> anyway, read more about that on Movie John. We'd like to know your thoughts on the books that we talked about today or what you've been reading lately. Be sure to join Momble's 2023 Reading Challenge on Storygraph. We're going to be talking about the Reading Challenge, our last episode of every month. Matt's going to be with us next time to talk about Easy Riders Raging Bulls with us. So it'll be fun. We've got some other really good books that I know that have been picked out for February. So be sure to join Mumble's 2023 Reading Challenge on Storygraph. You can also find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, where you'll also find the link to join our Discord community. You should also be able to see that in the episode description. We have fun. Join us. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.